0: Family caregivers don't have to be alone in their experiences. You will hear from experts and other caregivers facing the same issues that you may be facing. Now, here is your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley.
1: Hello, this is Dr. Gordon Atherley. A bit of background on me, I'm a physician trained in Britain, living in Canada, and who's worked in the U.S. Since retiring from medical practice, I've become an activist for family caregiving, which explains the name of the show, Family Caregivers Unite, with the exclamation point. Our topic today is family doctors safeguarding vulnerable adults. Now, we know that more and more vulnerable adults are a concern for governments. And I took a look this morning at what the Washington State Legislature had to say, just as one example. And here are some of its words. Some adults are vulnerable and may be subjected to abuse, neglect, financial exploitation, or abandonment, by a family member, care provider, or other person who has a relationship with a vulnerable adult. And they also said a vulnerable adult may have health problems that place him or her in a dependent position. Now we know, all of us know, that more and more vulnerable adults are being cared for by family caregivers. So what and how the family doctor does to help safeguard vulnerable adults is an important question for family caregivers. And to help answer this question, my guest today is Dr. Tony Calland. Dr. Calland is the chairman of the British Medical Association Medical Ethics Committee. His previous activities in the British Medical Association include chairman of Welsh Council, chairman of the Welsh General Practitioners Committee, and UK negotiator for the General Practitioners Committee. He's also received a British Medical Association Medal for Outstanding and Sustained Service. And before retiring, he was a family doctor in partnership in the Wye Valley. Um, This is an area of outstanding natural beauty that straddles the border between England and Wales. And um, Tony's special interests include organ donation and information governance. So, Tony, I'd like to start by asking you this question. Please, would you tell us more about your background as a physician and your interest in medical ethics?
2: I went into general practice in 1973 in the Wye the Valley. It is a practice of two partners covering approximately 200 square miles, uh, which straddles the border between England and Wales. We were a rural dispensing practice. We had access to two cottage hospitals. Cottage hospitals, in the English sense, are sort of small hospitals that undertake minor uh, accident and uh, emergency work. Uh, They have inpatient beds that are generally looked after for patients who don't require sophisticated uh, treatment or medication. Uh, They're looked after by their own general practitioner. So I spent 34 years in that practice and uh, had a thoroughly wonderful time looking after all aspects of patient care.
1: Now, I'm going to ask you about your chairmanship of the uh, Medical Ethics Committee of the British Medical Association. Um, I want you particularly to tell us about the committee's recent publication on Safeguarding Vulnerable Adults. And please, can you say why you published it?
2: Yes, certainly. Well, the committee itself consists of two uh, parts of members. There are doctors who are elected onto the committee and they are in a majority. But there are also a number of um, experts, ethical experts, professors of ethics, professors of law, professors of philosophy and professors of religion who are invited to join the committee and we consider a variety of aspects um, of medical practice, uh, some sort of very uh, very sort of technical and detailed, particularly when we get into some of the stuff around embryo uh, research and um, that kind of thing, the sort of cutting edge stuff. Uh, but also we, we have a big programme going about organ donation, the change uh, to our organ donation programme going on in Wales at the moment, moving from what is simply called an opt-in system, so people will choose to join an organ donan- donation register, we're moving to, from that to an opt-out system, where it will be assumed they join the register unless they wish to get out. Going to the publication that we made, we we had recognised that there was a growing concern in this country about vulnerable adults. There's a lot of fuss about vulnerable children, which is absolutely correct. But adults sometimes get sort of, they fall between uh, two stools. And this can apply not only to the elderly where it is more obvious, but also to people with learning disabilities, but also people with long-term, uh, particularly degenerative illnesses as they become more and more frail. So this guidance uh, was is aimed at general practitioners, but also aimed at hospital doctors who are dealing with the groups who uh, we'll talk about through the, throughout the programme.
1: You've already told us quite a lot about who the vulnerable adults are. Um, I'd like you to say anything more that you think would be helpful to us about these vulnerable adults and also particularly what makes them vulnerable, why are they vulnerable?
2: Well I think any long-term um, or even short-term physical illness or mental illness can anything that reduces a person's ability to react to situations around them. Um, it can be for instance, as one gets older and more frail with the elderly, you're more likely to suffer from falls, uh, tripping over things, or literally just getting dizzy and falling over. Um, if you have mental mental health illnesses, be it um, a psychotic illness in, like schizophrenia or whether you suffer from various types of depression or even epilepsy, those are all Type of medical conditions that can make you from time to time vulnerable. Also, we have to look at uh, mental capacity, and that is the ability of people to understand what is going on around them. Because if you have impairment of mental capacity, which may be due to alcohol, maybe due to drugs, maybe due to illness, um, again, you are in a vulnerable situation when it comes to the world outside you. Uh-
1: Now, the Washington state legislature listed some of the things that um, vulnerable adults are vulnerable to. Please, could you expand on that list? And if you can, give us some examples of the things that vulnerable adults are actually vulnerable to.
2: Yes, I mean, certainly. um, I think one of the things that in general vulnerable adults are uh, sort of, susceptible to is over-enthusiastic paternalism. Uh, That is well-meaning relatives, carers or whatever who make value judgments about uh, individual patients and sort of make judgments about their lives for them when in fact where it is at all possible the most important thing is to look at the opinions of the person themselves. The kind of um, vulnerabilities that may occur with people, some which you mentioned at the top of the programme, um, physical abuse sometimes, sadly, or physical vulnerability, as I've mentioned with falling over, it can be psychological abuse with uh, various kinds of coercion, bullying, uh, or even a downright cruelty in some cases, sadly. Financial abuse is something that we see not infrequently, and there are a whole host of laws in this country, and I presume elsewhere, to try and protect vulnerable people from having their their finances raided by uh, sort of ruthless carers, relatives or whatever. And also, sadly, sexual abuse in um, some some people with uh, perhaps learning disabilities or or with various kinds of physical disabilities, where they're not able to respond and 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 prevent the person uh, from doing that. So you can those are the kinds of vulnerability you get. Um, But I mean, it can occur through system failures in. Institutions, be they hospitals, be they nursing homes, be they other care facilities, where, for whatever reason it is, being too busy, not being interested, um, the staff will miss that, that somebody, for instance, is unable to eat their lunch. Uh, and they require feeding, and that in a way is is may, that person is vulnerable because they may not be able to help themselves to feed. And there have been a number of instances in the re- in the press in this country recently where elderly people have been slowly uh, losing uh, sort of weight and things because they're not actually physically able to eat, and nobody's cottoned on to the fact that uh, they need to be fed. So those are the kinds of categories where you where you find people are vulnerable and it's a matter of recognition that's uh, really one of the most important things
1: what you've been saying covers a very broad territory doesn't it of of vulnerabilities and things that can go wrong and some of them obviously lie what i would call in the health range the health domain but some of them lie outside it um I just ask you a quick question because we will be going into the break in a second. How good is the, how good does the uh, linking up of services have to be to ensure that everybody is working on the same problem that is protect or same policy of protecting vulnerable adults? Large question, but what do you think about?
2: well i think you know that question is key really how, and it it involves a whole range of other things that i think we may talk about later on which is t- about information sharing and how much uh, confidential information needs to be passed on to other agencies about people's um mental state, their physical state, maybe even their financial state. Uh, So I think it is a key area, but it it involves a complex set of uh, sort of situations where, in a way, you just have to look at each one on its own merits. Um, And hopefully, uh, with sensible, with good common sense, people will share relevant amounts of uh, information to make sure that the people have the, an optimum amount of care from a different range of different carers.
1: I'm just going to uh, make a quick comment from my own life experience. Um, I live in what's called a condominium that is where there are a lot of retirees like me and we all got a notice the other day to say that one of our uh, fellow residents had just been robbed by or defrauded of several thousand dollars and my view is she isn't in the strongest of health and that is a very obvious vulnerability which is being preyed on and so that's one of the reasons that we will later on talk about the very point you just raised which is who knows what about who and what happens to that information, uh, and who who can receive that information, because there's what I would call a security risk behind all of that. Now, we are going to talk about that, and we are going to um, explore what I would call the mixture of medical and social issues, which all of this raises. And I, I'm, I am asking you to come up with answers, but I do recognize that the, um, the answers are not entirely straightforward and perhaps lie ahead of your committee ahead of the British government ahead of the various governments in North America and ahead of family caregivers
2: Right, okay, well I'm, I'll get to work on that
1: <laughs> Right, so here comes the music and we will be coming back so it is time to take a short break this is Dr Gordon and my guest is Dr Tony Colland. you're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety Channel. Please stay with us. We will be back.
3: Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it.
2: VoiceAmerica.com.
3: The internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Help! You know I need
0: someone. Help! You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to Doc G at mymonami.com. That's Doc Letter G at mymonami.com Now back to Family Caregivers Unite
1: Welcome back um, to Family Caregivers Unite and Dr. Tony Kaland. our topic is family doctors safeguarding vulnerable adults So let's now talk about uh safeguarding the actual safeguarding itself of vulnerable adults So Tony over to you which adults are most in need of safeguarding and why are they in need of it, most in need of it?
2: Well, I, I don't think there's one group you could say were particularly more in need than others uh, in terms of the needs. There. But there are a range of, of uh, vulnerabilities um, which we've talked about. We've talked about the elderly. We've talked about people with mental health difficulties. We've talked about learning disabilities. And we've also talked about people with variable capacity and they each present a sort of set of unique problems. Uh, The physically frail, now that may be a temporary thing and you can be a vulnerable adult and physically frail if you've had a skiing accident and you're hopping around on on crutches. Uh, It doesn't make you tremendously vulnerable, but if anybody's been in that position, they are a lot less manoeuvrable than they would like to be. And whilst that doesn't make them uh, into the, the major category it's the sort of thing that you have to think about um, and it's surprising how vulnerable you can feel when you are in that situation so when you've got somebody who is uh, you know getting really into the end quarter of their life and they're not as nimble as they were Physical frailty can become a real problem and it's a matter of things like making sure the home is safe, making sure uh, people have time to get out and uh, get across the road and all that sort of thing. I think mental capacity and and mental illness capacity can vary, as we know, um, with mental illness. Uh, it can also vary with uh, the ageing process. And the thing to remember about capacity, perhaps, is that it's variable, and people might have uh, the capacity to make a decision about whether they want um, whether they want fish or meat for lunch but they might have great difficulty in making a decision about how they would want to invest their their life savings or whether they would want to move their life savings from one place to another uh, because of the complexity of the question. So uh, complex questions with people with uh, dubious or various uh, variable capacity are important. And obviously there are then people with learning disabilities at whatever level, um, and they may never have had any capacity they're obviously vulnerable, or people again with some um, conditions which create learning disabilities, but they 're quite capable of of making some decisions, but not others so you can 't look at any one group in isolation, and it 's important also not to stigmatize people as particularly vulnerable uh, it, as it, it must be looked as something that needs to be taken into account but it mustn't be something that sort of excludes people
1: now you've again covered a very broad territory with the question of sort of what the needs for safeguarding are let me ask you a, another equally broad question what actually is meant by safeguarding and what i'm after here is it a matter of law is it a matter of physical things in the home uh, is it a matter of protecting people's um, money in the bank what, what's the sort of broad description you would give for safeguarding as the sorts of things that we as a society must do
2: well i think Put, to answer the question in the broadest terms, it's simply preventing harm from coming to someone. So safeguarding is, is about trying to anticipate uh, situations that may arise because of physical, mental frailty or, or vulnerability, and then taking steps to actually try and prevent those fears, those worries, those anxieties from actually happening. And, uh, I mean, if we're looking at, for instance, the elderly, we need to make sure that they're capable of being fed, capable of having appropriate hydration, and capable of making sure they're warm um, or cool, depending on the weather. Right. Um, And so, you know, it's about preventing physical harm from falling. Which, uh, as I alluded to earlier, is like not having wires, sort of, you know, electrical flexes running across the centre of the room, and and making sure that they can get easily in and out of their furniture, their chairs. Um, It's making sure that people are not subjected to any kind of violence, um, which sadly does occur. I, I I've, you know, seen uh, ch- people's children when they're looking after uh, elderly people actually being quite violent with them, um, uh, which, you know, is something that I think doctors, nurses, medical staff need to be aware of. And of course, if there are large sums or even small sums of money um, around, there needs to be, uh, it needs to be dealt with appropriately make sure large amounts of cash are not kept in the house if possible and if there is financial vulnerability maybe involving what we have here which is known as the court of protection which uh, can take over the um, day-to-day administration of uh, a person's finances in order to protect them uh, from uh, relatives or Uh, carers who might have an eye to uh, misusing those funds
1: now i want to turn the spotlight now on family doctors and families that is family doctors who work provide services to families who work with families who get to know families and become in that sense one of the one of the people key people in the life of the family, especially when they're dealing with people with some kind of health-related frailty. So uh, what, what would you say are the basic principles um, that underpin the safeguarding in the context of family doctor and families? What, in other words, should they be talking about? What are the kind of things they can do together? What are the kind of things they should be on the lookout for?
2: Well, I think... The key issue is about identification of possible problems and vulnerable individuals. And I, I suppose for the general sort of general practitioner in this country, that means um, if particularly certain people become ill with physical illnesses or mental illnesses, that there's a high index of suspicion and Um, wariness around uh, in the mind of the doctor or the health professional. Um, We need a good reporting system from perhaps we have community nurses here who visit people in their own homes for various nursing duties, dressing wounds, etc., dressing leg ulcers, that kind of thing. Um, And I think there needs to be a good uh, liaison between the various uh, health professionals working uh, for the benefit of a particular patient so that um, if it is noticed that Mrs Jones is getting very wobbly on her legs uh, by the district nurse, well, the district nurse tells the doctor and that might trigger uh, a referral to the social services so that they become involved and maybe carers who are non-medical would, would come in and pop in and maybe we need something like Meals on Wheels, which is a sort of uh, meals service for, for people who are no longer uh, easily able to cook for themselves. And that's the sort of thing you have to be aware of, identification. And you have to be aware that when the situation actually changes um, and somebody has an acute episode of illness, that maybe Um, firstly their recovery may be prolonged compared with a younger person um, or a fitter person and also they may uh, sort of take a step down generally and I think uh, we we see this quite frequently where somebody's had an episode of perhaps pneumonia, gone into hospital but when they come back they don't quite get back to where they were before they become unwell.
1: Right. Now this one is a Another huge question, but we've only got a relatively short space of time to answer it. Now, is it right then for, the, for me to say to you that family doctors, nurses who visit the home would also be looking out for abuse and neglect? And if so, what kind of abuse and neglect would, would they be looking for?
2: Um, well, I think um, you have to look at sort of what you might call Positive uh, acts, like um, maybe harsh treatment, harsh physical treatment, maybe it 's as simple as the person who is doing the caring is not physically able to move around the patient and they need help, but it may it may sort of um, d- demonstrate this difficulty by bruising or or you know, some other uh, physical evidence that had been perhaps what was rough handling. Now, it may have been directly rough handling. On the other hand, it may have been uh, but I, maybe inexpert handling or just handling where there weren't enough people around to do the job. Uh, so there's that sort of thing. Um, obviously, psychological um, you know, abuse can go on, and any evidence of that, um, I, I'm sure many family physicians will have seen sort of quite bombastic children uh, or bombastic parents uh, dealing with their with their uh, vulnerable adults. Uh, you've got to have a high index of suspicion around where there may be evidence of, of sexual interference, and again right.
1: that. Tony, I'm going to stop you there because it is the time for us to take the break, and we will come back to these issues. So we'll take the break now. This is Dr. Gordon Atterley, and my guest is Dr. Tony Calland. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety Channel. We're coming back. Please stay tuned.
3: Each week, take a visit inside the locker room of your favorite sport with Dez Clark, Paul Fresh Clark, and Lester Scudder-Davis as they bring you sportsmanlike conduct. As a current player, Dez Clark can bring you inside the sports world like nobody can. His co-hosts represent the fans of the sports world. With both points of view on the table, it becomes an engaging and entertaining program to say the least. Sportsmanlike conduct can be heard Tuesdays, 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Sports Channel. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. Stay at 8 a.m. Pacific for the Dr. Pat Show with Dr. Pat Basili, Radio to Thrive By. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain inspired really fast. All the time, the number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. Voiceamerica.com. You know, I need someone. You are listening to Family
0: Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at mymonami.com. That's doc, letter G, at M-Y-M-O-N-A-M-I dot com. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite.
1: Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Dr. Tony Kaland. Our topic is Family Doctors Safeguarding Vulnerable Adults. So now let's talk about the family doctor's role in safeguarding vulnerable adults. So Tony, let me ask you this question first. How involved are family doctors with vulnerable adults and in what ways are they involved?
2: Well, in the United Kingdom we have a system where patients are registered with their GP and the GP is then responsible for all the care, all their care and health needs. Um, social services look after their sort of more social needs. But it is the general practitioner that is at the centre of the hub, if you like. And he is, uh, to keep going into metaphors, he is the conductor of the orchestra. So because the GP is going to be, or at least his practice is going to be, involved in almost every aspect of healthcare of an individual patient, Um, and even if the, the doctor, um, him or herself does not see the patient, uh, the, the practice will be aware of any issues and there will be a sort of dialogue within the practice about the healthcare needs of any individual patient. So they are critical, uh, in terms of identifying the need, assessing Uh, the level of vulnerability and directing the patient to the correct um, sort of an appropriate bodies to give them the kind of care that they need, Um, which, as I say, may be community nursing care. It may be health visitors. it. It may be uh, psychiatric social workers. Uh, it may be there's a variety of nurses and care workers for the elderly. Or it may be simply to social services for uh, arranging home domestic carer service coming in and perhaps um, getting people up and putting them to bed
1: at the end of the day. Now, if this is a follow-on question, really, and that is how do the task, of safeguarding vulnerable adults that cover all these people, services that you've been talking about, how do they actually fit into the medical work, the medical care provided by the family doctors? And, I, I, you know, I did general practice at one stage in my career, and I think what people expected of me was to examine them, make a diagnosis, write a prescription, or refer them for treatment. I don't think, and I'm this is a long time ago, but I don't think they were looking to me so much for commenting on the sorts of things you've been describing. So how do the tasks of safeguarding actually fit into the work, the modern work of family doctors in Britain? Well I think,
2: I think the, the, the first responsibility really comes down to identification and uh, uh, whilst it may not be the doctor himself or herself that does that, it will be the practice of doctors. And I mean, in this country, a practice may be one doctor and his staff, or it may be 10 or even 15 doctors and a much larger number of staff. But that sort of medical unit, uh, it is their responsibility to identify. And the doctor may um, be involved in uh, sort of, uh, as I've said, Directing the patient to the right agencies, um, and that might be a fairly sort of uh, superficial sort of um, involvement because it may be that the patient does not need a great deal of input from the doctor in terms of diagnostic or pharmacological medical care. It may be more of a physical thing to do with a physiotherapist. It may be to do with district nursing. It may be to do with social care where people will come in and, 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 and as I've said, uh, get people up, put people to bed, and make sure that they've got drinks and, and, and food available so that they can, you know, they, they do not suffer the kind of uh, de- deprivation that uh, I mentioned earlier about, about when people can't reach their food. Yeah. So those are the kinds of things. I, 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 I accept the doctor doesn't necessarily need to be involved in sort of a great deal of the care, but he is at the top of the pyramid, if you like.
1: Fair, Now, you've mentioned already something called mental capacity, and again, in the context of what family doctors do, how do they get involved with mental capacity, and does it spill over into the question of medical mental capacity for people with mental health conditions, which are such that they cannot make their own decisions. Please tell us about mental capacity in family doctors.
2: Well, mental capacity really is about um, the ability of patients to function at a a normal level mentally. That means you can understand what is going on around you, you can assimilate it, retain what you have, have seen or heard uh you can process it in your in your mind which will enable you to make decisions and then you can uh act on or you can communicate those decisions to others so obviously if you have a mental illness perhaps for instance a psychotic illness like schizophrenia and you are uh having um you know uh, delusions uh, it may well be that you are not able to appreciate the world as it really is, and you are, you are therefore unable to um, assimilate the reality of the world. You are seeing the world through a different set of eyes, as you might say, which is not correct. In other words, you are beginning to lose mental capacity because the understanding of what is going on around you is the first part of having mental capacity. <laughs> And the thing to remember about mental capacity is that it's variable. And as I mentioned earlier in the programme, it might be all right to make a simple decision about, you know, sausages or fish for lunch. But a more complex decision about maybe a financial transaction or, or deciding whether to have an operation or not and working out the risk sort of benefit uh, profile of that operation on the information given is a totally different level of capacity and it must be remembered that people can have capacity for one thing but maybe not have capacity for another
1: right now again it's same story but different direction um i say it's uncomfortably known that vulnerable adults get into trouble with the law, and many, certainly of the young, younger generation of vulnerable adults, do wind up in prison. Now, what are the medical conditions that affect these vulnerable adults, and how can family doctors help in that kind of situation? Um, that is, where there's a young adult got into trouble with the law, the family is deeply concerned, where does the family what kind of help does the family doctor offer under those circumstances?
2: Well, it depends about again we go back to sort of capacity and uh, if we if we deal with uh, what I would call mental illness first and again the psychotic disorders uh, then it may well be that people, if they have an acute uh, exacerbation of their psychotic disorder, are so disorientated uh, that they they do not have proper capacity and they need uh, I mean they will need very urgent medical care and I mean in, in its most extreme form uh, that means a sort of uh, emergency admission into a safe secure unit maybe um, in fact with restrictions on one's freedom under what we have here is, is the Mental Health Act um, which gives permission for people to be detained against their will if necessary for their own good so there's there's all the mental sort of illnesses like that but of course also there are the the sort of um, the drug induced or alcohol induced states where people may well lose capacity uh, and uh, they can become extremely erosive to people's personality. Uh, they can certainly drive their carers to complete distraction um, in terms of uh, how to help them because uh, the insight into the difficulty is generally not great. There is often a substantial resistance uh, to any kind of therapeutic treatment um, and uh, also there is often in those instances a degree of peer pressure to continue doing the abuse that um, May be causing the problem. And I'd sadly, um, I mean, I think a lot of people, certainly in prisons over here, uh, have many of these um, sort of problems to do with drugs, to do with alcohol, to do with poor education, um, and maybe even uh, to do with literacy. Uh, so that, you know, from the start, in a way, people are vulnerable. You're a vulnerable adult if you are unable to read and write to an appropriate standard, uh, and that perhaps should be recognised.
1: I'm just going to make a quick editorial comment back to you and say that here in the part of Canada I live, um, a class action suit has just been launched against the um, provincial, that is the state government, um, for the handling of um, young adults In, you know, the kind of facilities where uh, the, to use an old term of the past, the insane were put. I don't, I'm using that word pejoratively. It's a horrible word, but that was the concept. And now there's such a change in attitude that government is being criticized through this suit for. Um, what happened in the past. And, of course, that raises the question of what's going to happen in the future to get around this problem. Now, um, we will be talking um, uh, in a moment or two about what should happen in the future. But I would just like, again, to emphasize back to you the things that you've been saying point to um, a great deal of care being required in understanding what is leading to the situation that these vulnerable adults are getting themselves into, which raises, again, the question of information, and also, as you've said, the question of identification, the question of understanding. So, once again, it's time for us to take the short break. As I like to say, we do have to pay the rent. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley, and my guest is Dr. Tony Kalanda. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unites on the Voice America Variety Channel. We're coming back.
3: to know what's really going on these days? Well, Capital Thinking takes you inside the worlds of policy, politics, law, and business. What happens in Washington, on Wall Street, and in our nation's legal system impacts your business every day. We're taking you on a behind-the-scenes tour of all of it. Each week, we bring you unfiltered conversation with a variety of influential policymakers, lawyers, and business leaders. I'm Kevin O'Neill, and I'm your host as Capital Thinking tours the halls of power. Join me for Capital thinking on the voice america business network each thursday at noon eastern and 9 a.m pacific time are you ready to go green you've asked and we've heard you voice america presents the green talk network the leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com Help, you, know I need
0: someone. you are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to G at mymonami.com That's doc, letter G, at M-Y-M-O-N-A-N-A-N-A-N-A-N-A-N-A-N-A-N-A-N-A-N-A-N-A-N-A-N-A-N-A-N-A-N-A-N-A-N-A-N-A-N-A-N-A-N-A-N-A-N-A-N-A-N-A-N-A-N-A-N-A-N-A-N-A-N-A-N-A-N-A-N-A- AMI.com. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite.
1: Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Dr. Tony Kaland. Our topic is family doctors safeguarding vulnerable adults. So let's talk about some of the social aspects of the problems uh, affecting vulnerable adults and their family caregivers. So, Tony, my first question for you on this particular stream of reasoning is, How well does the justice system understand and deal with vulnerable adults who get into trouble with the law?
2: Well, I think that's a really good question. And I think the fact that uh, the incidence of illiteracy and mental illness in prison is extremely high, the answer to your question is they don't deal with it very well. Uh, I think there is... um, in many ways, a, a lack of understanding of the complexity that the, the conditions that these people suffer from. And if, uh, if you are a young man and full of testosterone and you feel inadequate because you can't read properly, um, it is not particularly surprising that you may become uh, violent because of frustration. But of course, there is a balance to be struck by the authorities between um, recognizing there is a, a public interest in terms of safety. And right. so um, one has to balance uh, vulnerable people may be vulnerable, but they may also be dangerous. Uh, and you have to uh, try and ba- balance those two things so that uh, they are dealt with appropriately um, And I think really, sadly, in this country, uh, it's probably up to a lot of charities who look at particular aspects of um, prison life and prison care and prison aftercare um, rather than governments that, uh, that are involved.
1: This brings us back to family doctors and information. Family doctors know or are likely to know the diagnosis and medical history of the kind of vulnerable adults you're talking about. So here's the question, with whom should the family doctors share this information, the diagnosis, and with whom should they not share it, and when and why? Another long question, but a fundamental one in what we're talking about.
2: Well, it is, and it raises a number of real, real difficulties. Um, I mean, in terms of sharing information, the the best way to sort of be, be certain that you're doing the right thing is to get consent of the patient to share information with other groups. And wherever it is appropriate and possible, um, health professionals should get the consent of the patient to share the um, the relevant information about them. Having said that, the amount of information that should be shared should be enough to do the job but not more than is necessary. It has to be appropriate. It has to be relevant. Of course, when we get into, um, uh, I was mentioning earlier, the the balance between the public interest um, and the confidentiality of the patient, if it is known that a patient is potentially violent or may damage themselves or damage other people, then the rules of confidentiality shift so that if there is a significant and reasonable public interest argument that information should be shared without consent, that can be done. But it can, if it is done, it will have, it should be done in a way that is uh, documented so that if challenged, the person doing the sharing can actually support their decision. It it has to be written down, preferably in patient's notes. It's a difficult decision. There isn't a simple answer. Uh, one has to balance two competing um, goods in a way, the good to keep uh, patient confidentiality and trust, but also balance that with the good of public safety.
1: Right. Now I'm talking now about situations in which vulnerable adults get into trouble with the law and you mentioned it they the situation may be such that the police themselves are in danger somebody has a weapon somebody has a knife um nobody knows what's going to happen there's an emergency now in a situation of emergency like that should the police do you think, be alerted to a vulnerable adult's diagnosis and medical history? And if, if the answer to that is yes, who should do the notifying?
2: Well, I think in acute, you know, in acute situations, it, it may well all occur sort of at a distance from the, the, from the doctor or from the medical practice, and therefore they may not be aware of the acute situation that's created. But if they were... Um, I think, and, and it was liable that uh, a, their patient was either going to harm someone else, police officer or a member of the public, or that the, the, they may be themselves in danger by waving a gun around these days is not a good thing to do. Um, and the police tend to t- sort of take a fairly active line in that. And then it would be legitimate to inform the police that this person uh, you know has an illness that um, that they may not be uh, they may not be completely aware of the circumstances that they've got themselves into because they may be under uh, some kind of illusion delusion um, and I think it is OK to tell people under those circumstances whether it would make any difference would be, of course, up to the circumstances and the police, of course. But it, I don't think anyone would criticise a doctor for telling the police that this person suffers from, for instance, temporal lobe epilepsy and may behave in a very strange way, but is generally, if the epilepsy is controlled, not a risk to the public. Right. Uh, I think that would be reasonable.
1: Now, this is a catch question in a way, but these are the days of the electronic medical record, the electronic health record. Should the police have access to uh, my electronic health record if I'm threatening them with a gun, or shouldn't they? What, what do you think?
2: Uh, the simple answer to that is no. Um, not because I'm trying to... Uh I suppose be difficult about it but I think uh, to, to, to give the police access without any kind of safeguard would not be uh, a, a way forward it would create very clearly a, a considerable anxiety in many many people including me probably um, and uh, I think it, it the difficulty is that um, the more widely available medical records are sadly, the more widely they are possible to be, it is possible to actually gain access to them and, and, and the confidence breaks down. Um, there are, sadly, a lot of instances of um, inappropriate access to medical records when it is possible to do so.
1: Now, and I'm going I to stop you there, not because it's unimportant and not because your question, your answer isn't very very good one but because i just want to give you a minute i'm afraid to give your message to family caregivers caring for a vulnerable adult about the role of the family doctor Um, what's your message to family caregivers about the things that the family doctor can do for them
2: identify those people you think are vulnerable for all the reasons that we've talked about consult all the relevant people who you think may be able to help them organize the care share your share with consent if you can and if you can't be prepared to defend why you've broken the confidence and the reasons for it uh, so that the, and you hope that the vulnerable adult will be safe and free from harm or avoid harm and so will the general public
1: so that's a very strong message, and it puts the family doctor and the family caregiver in a rather special relationship. That is to say, they need to trust each other at every level and need to be able to work together in the best interests of the family member. And I think that's a very, very powerful point, and unfortunately we have to leave it at that. Um, important topic. hope we get a chance to talk about it again. So I want to say thank you to our listeners. Please email us with your comments and questions. And a big thank you to Tony for sharing with us all this expertise and insight and advice you've got. And even though you've retired, I don't think you've actually stopped work. So we wish you every success in continuing your work. Now, in our next episode, we'll talk about living a meaningful family caregiver life. Please join us, same time, same spot on the Internet. Talk to you then.